Welcome, this is Michael Annis, and you're listening to episode 325 of the Space Rocket History Podcast. And now, Soyuz 10, docking with Salyut 1. On the last episode, we covered the background information on Soyuz 10, the spacecraft that was planned to deliver the first crew of Salyut 1. The plan was to use the EGLA automatic docking system to perform the hard dock. We now resume with the launch of Soyuz 10. On April 22, 1971, Shatilov, Yelizhev, and Rukovishnikov, plus all the other parties, both political and technical, gathered for the launch of Soyuz 10. But the weather began to deteriorate rapidly. Even the veterans of Tyratam could not recall an autumn cold rain falling in late April. A glitch in the form of a failure of the pull-off plug to eject from Block 1, the third stage of the carrier rocket, was chalked up to the rain on launch day. Finally, a decision was made. All the systems were brought into their initial state. The launch was called off. Many of the technicians in the bunker joked that Shatilov simply could not lift off on his first try. The crew was evacuated from the Soyuz, the problem with the pull-off plug was solved, and the launch was postponed for 24 hours. On April 23, 1971, everyone once again gathered for the launch. This time, the launch proceeded normally, and Shatilov Yelizhev and Rukovishnikov were placed in orbit. The radio call sign of the crew was granite. The first crew reports from orbit were optimistic. Первая в мире стыковка корабля с орбитальной станцией. Однако из-за неисправности стыковочного узла корабля не была достигнута герметичность, поэтому переход на станцию «Салют» был отменен и полет досрочно прервали. With the business completed at the launch site, the technical management and the state commission flew out to Yevpatoria. The importance of Soyuz 10 should not be underestimated. Everyone wanted to go to the control center. When they landed at the Naval Aviation Airfield in Saki, so many passengers streamed out of the airliner that they barely managed to squeeze into the automobiles sent for them. Everyone who had just arrived displayed genuine eagerness, dropped their suitcases at the hotel, and rushed over to the control center. The next report came in that everything was normal on board the Salyut and Soyuz vehicles. The Salyut was in its 79th orbit. At the recommendation of the ballistics experts, an orbital correction of both vehicles would occur during the 81st orbit. For the Salyut, this would be performed automatically via command radio link. For the Soyuz, manually by the cosmonauts in putting the correction on their console. 
As a result of the corrections, the long-range ballistic rendezvous process was predicted to begin on the 82nd orbit. According to the ballistics experts' calculations, the vehicles would approach one another to a distance of up to 11 to 12 kilometers at around 0400 hours. The subsequent rendezvous would take place in automatic mode per command from EGLA. According to the calculations, rendezvous and docking should be completed in 16 minutes at 0,522 hours. Then, according to the flight plan, transfer from the Soyuz to the Salyut would be performed during the 84th orbit, and the cosmonauts should enter the station during the 87th orbit. That was the plan. Here's what happened. Ground Control had just managed to sort out the list of operations for the two vehicles and the allocation of responsibility for them in the control and analysis group when two instructions came in from Moscow. First, prepare the crew for a conversation with Brezhnev, and second, transmit on board the text of a greeting from the Communist Party of Bulgaria. Then, suddenly, the report came in, that during the fifth orbit of the Soyuz, the first orbital correction had failed. The situation was immediately reported to Moscow with a request that the crew not be distracted by conversations with Brezhnev and greetings to the Bulgarians. OKB-1 Chief Designer Mission demanded that the causes for the failed orbital correction be explained to him. By now, so many people were crammed into the control room that there was no places for the bosses to sit, and it was quite difficult to consult with one another, talk, and command the various services over the dozens of telephones. The state commission and the upper management became a disruptive element in controlling the flight, but no one could tell them that. Flight Supervisor Roschenbach had the unenviable task of explaining the first failure to the chiefs while working with the ballistics team to make the next correction. He told the chiefs gathered around him that the cosmonauts received the data for the beginning of the correction very late, and when they pressed the key on the console, the ionic orientation system's readiness for orientation was reset. During his explanation, a report came over the loudspeaker. Soyuz 10 correction designated for 0134 hours. Engine operation time 17 seconds. Yelizhev reported that orientation had been executed and they were ready for correction. Tracking station 15 confirmed that the settings had been input into the Salyut for the corrective acceleration at 0254 hours. The bosses continued to be a disruption. While Mission was arguing with General Karimov, suddenly they both demanded reports about backup scenarios in the event that Igla were to fail. Mission and Karimov repeatedly interrupted flight management demanding continuous reports. At that time, to make matters worse, information came through about some glitch in the system for monitoring the station's orbits. Karimov and Mission broke out in a furor at the ballistics experts. Reports from the loudspeaker cut into the general uproar. 
Rendezvous is in progress. Soyuz is two seconds ahead of Salyut. Granite is reporting. Radio lock-on has occurred. Igla is operating. Colonel Aganzanov, who was in charge of the command center, couldn't stand it any longer. And despite the presence of his direct supervisors, he yelled into the microphones feeding out to the general conference line and communication with the crew. I read your range, 10 kilometers. Don't disrupt my work. That last statement caused bewilderment on board the Soyuz. The cosmonauts were offended. They replied, We're reporting on the rendezvous progress according to the readings on the console. Over the general uproar and conversations, OKB-1 Deputy Chief Designer Boris Chertok was straining his ear trying not to miss any reports from the analysis group or crew about an off-nominal situation. If I don't have a stroke after this work, it will be a miracle. Ivan Meshakov managed to mutter as he gave the latest instructions via high-frequency communications to the computer center in Bolshevo. Why aren't you reporting on the completion of the orbit? asked General Komarov. Colonel Agadzinov, barely managing to control his temper, since he was in the middle of a conversation with the Soyuz, reported loudly, Granite, I read you, Igla is working. Guest listening, range 11 kilometers. What's going on with you? First 10, then 11. Who's the culprit? asked Mission. Agadzinov continued, we have shutdown of the propulsion system on Salyut. Granite is reporting about the operation of his engine. The program for orbit number 81 has been completed. The engine on the Salyut operated for 60 seconds. This is tracking station 12, Granite. During orbit number 82, we're awaiting the most crucial reports from you about the operation of IGLA and automatic rendezvous mode. Why so many unnecessary words, Mission asked Chertok. Well, said Chertok, he's giving information for communication with the crew, playing the role of commentator for the state commission, and giving orders throughout the entire command and measurement complex. Agadzinov continued, Orbit number 82, search in progress. All of the command and measurement systems are operating. Granite is reporting. Approach and attitude control nozzles are winking. What do you mean the nozzles are winking? What kind of nonsense are you talking? said Mission. Don't get distracted, Chertok said to Agadzinov. They can wait. Agadzinov continued. Salute approach engines are operating. 20 seconds. 25 seconds. 30 seconds. 35 seconds, 40 seconds, 45 seconds. Why don't they shut down on their own? Someone sobbed hysterically. Then the crew reported, approach rate, 8 meters per second, stable radio lock-on. We see a bright dot in the periscope, range 15 kilometers, rate 24. The control room fell quiet. Mission asked, who will explain what is going on? Why was it 11 and suddenly the range is 15? Chertok, Roshenbach, why are you sitting and doing nothing? 
Eagle is doing it for us, answered Chertok. If you were sitting in the spacecraft, perhaps you would be doing something. But now you need to listen and not interfere. Chertok was the one losing his temper now. What a madhouse, said Rauschenbach quietly. I hope Igla doesn't go crazy. Despite the control center squabbling, the automatic rendezvous process continued. Over the conference line, the telemetry experts, the crew, and the tracking stations conducted their reports, which the chiefs, eager for action, jumped on. Even though it was 0400 hours, no one was sleeping in the control room. Reports were coming from space and from the tracking stations, and local commentaries were in such abundance that even Chertok didn't always figure out the source of the information. The most reliable information, of course, was the telemetry being processed in real time and the Soyuz reports. They were coming almost simultaneously. The communications baton was passed seamlessly from tracking station to tracking station. Range 11, rate 26.5. Hundreds of officers and soldiers at the tracking stations, communication centers, and radio stations invisible and unknown to the top chiefs, were doing their jobs calmly and selflessly. Colonel Voronov was in charge of creating and then operating all the command and measurement communication structures for all of the space programs. He was the command and measurement deputy chief, but had a modest manner and tried not to come to the attention of the high-ranking guest. A report came in. Range 8. Rate 27.5. Range 6. Rate 27. Approach and attitude control engines are burning. They've begun turning the spacecraft. They can't approach at that rate, fretted Mission. Why aren't you doing anything? Tell the crew what to do. We don't need to do anything. Deceleration will begin now, Rauschenbach reassured Mission. The Soyuz approach engines executed a deceleration burn. Engine is operating 5 seconds, 10 seconds, 13 seconds. Range 4, rate 11. Approach and attitude control engines are burning. Turn is in progress. Range 3.5, rate 10. Soyuz approach engines have fired again. 10 seconds, 15 seconds, 20 seconds. 25 seconds, 30 seconds, 33 seconds, shutdown, range 2.7, rate 8. Then we heard the crew. We see the target against the background of Earth. The spacecraft lights are flickering, range 2.5, rate 8. We see the target in the periscope. Time seemed to stand still and the fear persisted that suddenly something inexplicable would happen. It was already 0500 hours. Now the doctors reported. According to telemetry, Shatilov, Yelizhev have a pulse rate of over 100, and Rukovishnikov is 90. They've started another turn. Range 1600, rate 8. Engine operating, 7 seconds. Range 1200, Rate 5, turning again. Range 950, rate 2, engine firing again, 5 seconds. 
Turn. Approach and attitude control engines flickering. The crew chimed in. We see the object. Turning again. Soyuz firing for four seconds. Range 800, rate 4. This is granite. I have a clear view of the target. And that was the last report from the spacecraft before it left the coverage zone. Someone whispered something to Rauschenbach. Mission saw it and said, Rauschenbach, don't keep secrets. Tell us why rendezvous is going so slowly. This is your logic. According to the calculations that were given to me, they should have made contact while they were still in the coverage zone. Rauschenbach answered, We checked the reserves. They had fuel reserves on board for rendezvous for just 13 meters per second for the Soyuz approach engine and 20 kilograms for the Salyut approach engines. If they enter our coverage zone again without having docked, we need to make the decision to call it off. We can't risk the fuel reserves for descent. Then Chertok reassured Mission. They understand everything very well there. We talked over such a situation with Yelizhev. He won't risk it. With Shatilov, I'm convinced they'll make the right decision. The 30-minute break in the coverage zone was agonizingly long. Then, attention, we are about to begin the communication session of orbit number 83. Readiness, five minutes. Granite, this is tracking station 36. I'm giving the count. One, two, three, four. This is Granite, I hear you fine. At 0447 hours, we executed manual final approach. We had contact and mechanical capture. Retraction began, but in the ninth minute, the docking and the internal transfer system mode halted. Retraction wasn't completed. Docking did not work. We don't know why. Look at the telemetry. Can you suggest what to do? The docking experts, Shavoglatov and Bakulin, were quickly found. They were pale and uneasy. They simply had not expected that of all the possible hypothetical failures, the one that would occur never happened during ground testing. Stammering from agitation, Shavoglatov explained to the hushed control room. The uh, rod, which is uh, the probe of the active docking assembly, was uh, extended in front of the docking surface. The entire distance for complete retraction using the ball screw is uh, 390 millimeters. Retraction began normally on a signal from the automatics. There was a retraction of 300 millimeters and then it stopped. The retracting mechanism was working and trying to draw in, but the gap between the surfaces of the active and passive assemblies didn't decrease. It is 90 millimeters. There were many possible causes, but we know that there was a very intense rolling motion right after capture. Then Mission replied, Why rolling? Where were the dynamics, Rauschenbach? Why were there oscillations? An unpleasant thought tore through Chertok. Yelizhev had reported that after capture, the approach and attitude control engine's indicator lit up and blinked for about 30 seconds. 
During that time, the vehicle rocked intensely. Chertok then laid out his explanation for the docking failure for Mission and Karamov, saying, Most likely, a mechanical failure occurred due to the large lateral oscillations. We failed to shut down the control system immediately after contact was made. A disturbance occurred, which the angular rate sensors monitored. The control system tried to compensate for the angular deviation, but capture had already taken place. So instead of settling down, rocking began. But rather than rocking about the center of the mass, it was on the rod that was engaged with the salute in the receiving drogue. Then we broke something. It is now pointless to continue docking attempts. We need to make the decision to undock. Salutations from the foothills of North Carolina. This is Michael Annis, your host, and I wanted to say thanks for listening to episode number 325 of the Space Rocket History Podcast entitled Soyuz 10, Docking with Salute 1. Hope you enjoyed this episode. It was a pleasure to bring it to you. My main source for this episode was Boris Chertok's book, Rockets and People, I'm sure you recall that Chertok was deputy chief designer of OKB-1. Now, he was a witness and a participant of these events, and I just find his insights fascinating. This mission was obviously very important to the Soviets, as Chertok spent quite a bit of time in his book giving the details. As I put this episode together, you would not believe that many times I had to just stop and laugh out loud at what was going on in that control room. The petty bickering and the outrageous demands made by Mission and Karamov while the mission was in progress were just unbelievable. How in the world could you conduct a mission in that environment? And then Aganzanov finally having enough of it and telling his bosses, do not disturb my work. And then the Soyuz crew hearing that, believing Aganzanov was talking to them and becoming offended. <laughs> I guess I can kind of identify with the controllers as part of my career as an electrical engineer. After the construction of a project, we would have something called the startup, where we try to bring the project online. And something usually unexpected would happen, and there would be some problems that we would have to work through. Of course, during startup was the only time you see the big shots show up. And usually, they didn't have a clue what was going on. So while I was trying to get everything working, 
they would constantly interrupt me with questions like, why isn't this working yet? (laughs) Or they made suggestions for a fix where I had to stop and talk to them right in the middle of trying to get the thing to work. So I can kind of identify with what the Soviet controllers were going through, but I did not endure any pressure like that. That was real pressure, and I feel for those guys. So I think Chris Kraft had it right. The flight director should be the one in charge during the mission, and even his bosses couldn't override. Anyway, that's just my thoughts. Next week, we will continue with Soyuz 10. Now that they are partially docked, will they be able to undock? And will the return to Earth go smoothly? Is it safe to return to Earth without any pressure suits? Find out next week. Oh, and I do want to apologize for this episode being a little late. I continue to struggle to keep up the pace. So, okay, if you're looking for the old episodes, the first 153 are available on the Archive Podcast. Search for Space Rocket History Archive. Should be available on all podcatchers. Well, it continues to be thank you donor bonus time of the year. And I have a new thank you today, but before I get to that, I want to remind all donors that have given $100 or more this year and have not received a 3-inch diameter logo magnet, please email me, mike at spacerockethistory.com. Tell me your address and I will send one out. And if you have contributed $50 or more this year, send me your address and I will mail you a Rev1 SRH logo sticker. And today, I want to announce my third and final donor thank you bonus. This is for anyone who has made a contribution this year. I would like to make available the SRH logo sticker for a $2 donation, which is below cost for me. So, if you have donated this year and would like a sticker, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, click on the orange donate button, and make a $2 donation. Put your address in the donation comments. I look forward to hearing from you. All these offers will end on December 31st, 2019. And I do want to remind everyone that it is not too late to become a donor this year, and you can qualify for these bonus thank yous. This year we are running a little behind, but it might be possible to make it by the end of the year. Our main goal is to reach 600 contributors by the end of the year, so so far we have reached 444, so we're 156 short. That may be tough to make it by December 31st, but let's give it a try. Our Patreon goal is to reach 300 donors by the end of the year, and we are at 242. So, if you are enjoying the over 324 episodes provided here and are financially able, please help us reach our goal. To contribute, go to the homepage, spacerockethistory.com, and click on the orange donate button or the Patreon link. Over the past week, we had three new contributions, and I would like to recognize Doug H., who donated at the Gemini level, James P. from California, who donated at the Vostok level, 
and Tommy H., who donated, no, who pledged on Patreon at the Jiminy level. Thank you very much for supporting the podcast. Okay, now for the 444 of you who have already donated for 2019, uh, we certainly appreciate it. This week we're giving away the SRH logo magnet to one of our lucky financial supporters. Here's Mrs. SRH with the weekly donor drawing. Thanks, Mike. Happy Thanksgiving, everyone. I am happy to announce this week's winner of the SRH logo magnet. With the help of Google's random number generator, I selected Matthew Oatkin. Matthew Oatkin, if you would email us, mike at spacerockethistory.com, and tell us your address, we will mail this out to you. Please accept my apology if I mispronounced your name. Thank you to all 444 of you who have contributed thus far in 2019. My sources for this week's episode were Rockets and People by Boris Chertok, Roads to Space by the Russia Scientific Research Center for Space Documentation, Soviet Space Program website, Russia Space Web, Sven Grand website, Astronics website, NASA Space Science Data Coordinated Archive, Space Facts website, and Wikipedia. Okay, folks, that's all we have for this week. I'll try to have episode 326 posted by next Thursday. So long for now.